You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. All right. Well, Bracken, we're saving you from yourself, I see. We need to. This is intervention. All right. Well, your screen name today says, save me from myself. And in parentheses, it says race. So what do you mean there, Bracken? Well, let's let's see how well you know me. I've now put in (laughs) nine weeks of uh, base building. Let's just take a guess what I'm going through right now. It does not take a rocket scientist or a biochemist to put together what's going on in your brain, Bracken. I think it's, it's, I'm not, I'm no, you know, smart dude here, but clearly the itch is still feeling like it hasn't been scratched and you want to, you want to go out there and test yourself a little bit on the race course. So you're feeling good. I do. And and the final stadium, stadium race of the year is happening to New York City. I just want to swoop Lisa up, fly out there for the weekend, do a race, get it out of my system, and then get back to my base building. Mm, continue. Which I swore I would not do. You publicly proclaimed you would yeah. not do. I have Rich Ryan telling me, don't do it. You said you weren't going to. I have you who I talked to which then opened it up to anyone who listens to this, to this podcast knows that I said, I won't do that again. I did it in Ohio. I kicked off this base building block with a scared straight experience. I went out and did a half marathon on the trails with obstacles, got my butt handed to me, felt what this sport is in its current state, which is deeper and better than it's ever been, while I was weaker and worse than I've ever been. So it was a good scared straight experience. And now the plan was see my training plan all the way through to spring and then jump in a race. But I know I'm in better shape than I was in that Spartan beast. I know that a stadium's more in my wheelhouse. I know that this outcome would be very different. That's exactly it. I've got two little things on each shoulder and they're both telling me, you're fast, go race. (laughs) So I need an external source of reason. And the thing is, is that those two things are both devils, not angels, which would oh, yeah. be, you know, one might think those are little angels on there whispering in your ear, telling you how great no, I've got are. two devils. You're supposed to have one of each. I've got two nope. devils. Mm-hmm. And, and you got two angels and me and Rich. That's right. Angelic folks keeping you, keeping you centered, Bracken. And Lisa's not to be trusted right now because she would take a weekend getaway. She would say for the, for the trip to New York City alone, it's worth it. Let's go do it. There. Like my rationale. I've put in... Two months of seven plus hours of aerobic work per week. I've been running lots of hills. So even if I'm running them at high end aerobic, I've probably only done four workouts in the last four months that I've crossed my aerobic threshold, but I'm still doing lots of hill work. So my legs are strong and then running downhill, even at aerobic threshold, running down a ski hill. The only way to do that is to turn your legs over fast. Mm -hmm. So I have better foot speed than I had because I've been running downhill fast. And I know I'm a minute faster in the 5k than I was nine weeks ago. And I've been doing enough strength work. I've been doing a lot of lunges. I've been doing sled push and pull on my, um, on my combo days. And so I know that I'm decently fit. I should say I'm decently in shape. There's a difference by the way. Yeah. There's being in shape. And there's being race fit. When when someone says, oh, they are super fit, that means they're out ready to go rip it up in a race. If you're in great yep. shape, you're in great shape. And that's fantastic. But it doesn't necessarily translate to the race course. Mm-hmm. So I know I'm in good shape. I'm not in good race fitness. And that's okay because the other devil on the other shoulder says, but it's a stadium. That's your best version of OCR. Go out there and just do it. Get mm-hmm. your decade streak back intact. Go do it. That. That devil has a nice, sultry, convincing tone, too. Mm-hmm. Sneaky. It's just, it's seductive, Kirk. And this is my, like, I have to do, I have to avoid this simply to spite myself. Like, I have to prove myself wrong. 
because this is my my track record. Start to feel fit, shortcut the process, cut it off at the mm-hmm. knees and jump right into race preparatory training, which then leads race to race to race to race to race, which cannot succeed long term, especially since I've been away from training for years of solid training. I can't fall back on anything. Well, and you make a good point about like once you make that decision to jump into a race, like that just waterfalls into more races. You don't just like one off a Spartan stadium and then like, like not good again for another four months. Like it always like that itch gets scratched once and then you got to keep itching it, keep itching yeah. it. And so starting that th- that off would be, you know, preemptive, It'd be too early. Well, and look, look at what it would be. I'm I'm three weeks out, two and a half weeks out from the Tennessee mile on December 4th, which is going to be six hours of running hills. I'll probably get around 30 miles in, which is going to need recovery afterwards. Mm -hmm. But if I race this weekend, I'm also going to race a Thanksgiving five miler because every year I do that Thanksgiving five miler. The old turkey trot put on by Festival Foods. Festival Foods five miler. Top five, you get like a, uh, gosh, what is like a $25 gift card to Festival Foods? That's worth it. And a pumpkin pie. Oh, I never got a pumpkin pie for my top five. Oh, yeah. Your friend Ty- Tyler Siegel beat me. Maybe first place got pumpkin pie. <laughs> Not me. Well, I didn't win last year. Or they didn't have it last year. I didn't win the year before or the year before that. I've uh, I've never won it. I've only taken second or third. Hmm. The last year I ran that in Green Bay, Wisconsin, I ran 26-10, I want to say, and took fifth freaking place. Fifth place. Running like five, what is that? Five fifteens, basically. Yeah. A little faster. Fifth yeah, a little faster. I got smoked. <laughs> so was Siegel and DeWitt there or something? I maybe DeWitt was off to look back, but Siegel ran like twenty-four high or twenty-five low. Anyways, I went out thinking like, oh yeah, there's like eight thousand people that show up to this thing and all these guys in their old college singlets. It's cause their seasons are over and some guys want to race. It was wild. I felt really humbled. Running twenty six ten, still getting smoked. Yeah. That was like four years ago. Maybe I need redemption. I think you do. But point being, I race this weekend, recover through the five miler, which will then beat me up because it's on semi hilly pavement. So then I'll have Mm -hmm. to recover. And then I'm only, what, 10 days out from a a six hour race. So I got to recover again. So now I've had a two week recovery period heading into a six hour race. And then I, my plan is to take a week totally down after that. This is my, mm-hmm. I finished base building, but I got to totally recover a week down and then a week easing back in. So now I have four weeks that I've all compromised my training rather than two, because I'm not going to taper into Tennessee mile. This is base building. This is just the cap around base building. So instead of having a week and a half to two weeks down, I would suddenly have four. And that instantly has started that. Yeah. That roller coaster effect of race recover, race recover, which is not where I want to be. This would only be for my ego. It serves no long term purpose. Yeah. And not only would you be compromising your training, you'd be compromising the meaning of your words to the running public. Yeah. Which is unacceptable. So I woke up this morning. Mm-hmm. Last night, I went to a funeral last night, and I had a half hour drive there and a half hour drive back, which carry the one. I think that's that's about an hour of thinking. And I spent most of the time thinking about this. I had already looked up flights and I got back and I went upstairs and Lisa said, are you all right? I said, I'm good, but I, I'm having some naughty thoughts. <laughs> she said, oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know where we're going with this. I said, I, I, I was looking at flights to New York City. She said, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, I'm going to run the fan bike, fan bike 5k in the morning. I've done that during every good block of preparation for for shorter course races i can't fake that workout it's simple you can't game it by doing certain movements better just your fitness is your fitness so if i can break 19 in that break 18 then i know i'm ready and i'm good to go and I'm, then i'll go do it Should oh yeah, all right so talk to me after you do the workout then we'll discuss it and i woke up this morning i went in there and i said i'm not going i'm not even going to do the workout don't let me and then we came in here and I'm do, doing my doing our talk here where I'm still trying to talk myself off the ledge. So I know not to do it. I know that. Don't do it. But I want to. Here's the thing. You are going to have, you have followed a process up to this point with purpose. You've practiced self-restraint. 
you've invested in your own words and principles for the first time in a long time, Bracken. Mm-hmm. Don't go fucking that up. And you're going to have 2022 for all of this to come out. And it's going to be set up because you chose the smart route now. So the, the, the writing's on the wall. You know this. You just, you know. It's, it's a good thing to be excitable. It's a good thing to want to get back out on course again. You had mentioned to Matt Fitzgerald last week that you had lost your racing edge, that you had at that point in time that you had, you know, maybe even felt more like a coach than an athlete. And right now I'm starting to sense that you are feeling a little bit more like an athlete. That's a good thing. So it's not like a bad thing you want to race, but then you just have to have that practical uh, conversation with yourself. Say, hold on, hold tight just for a little bit. Right? Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. It's not a bad thing to want to race, but it's it's a bad thing if you if you succumb to that one of those devils right now. Well, and what it shows is that like I'm getting my lean back into workouts edge back where I don't mind hurting and I don't mind being uncomfortable and I don't mind going into a workout knowing this is going to be very uncomfortable. So that's good. But I also lean back into my my personality trait of ignore what got me here and only remember the most recent thing. Right. Right. And that's that the build matters more than what you did the last three weeks. Yep. The last three weeks aren't sustainable forever. The build sustainable. And I cannot scrap that. So I know, I know this, I know this, I know this, but I still need to be saved for myself. Yeah. Well, your screen name makes sense. I don't have anything like ominous or hinting in my screen name. So, um, but yours was just a dead giveaway. We had to talk about it right away. What like the, the the last part? We can move on from this, but like the last part of this is what is the potential benefit of racing, and what are the potential drawbacks? We've talked about the drawbacks. I compromised the last two weeks of my 12, 11 week build, and then I compromised the race and the build into it, and then the two weeks afterwards, and it greases the wrong groove of decision making. What is the only real benefit from it? I can only think of two because there's not enough money in the race to be worth it. I'll, I'll lose money on the trip, even if you win the race. Well, benefit would just um, be, you know, this is an ego driven sport for a lot of people. And so it's going to help build potentially the ego, which could also build confidence, which would mm-hmm. thus lead into maybe uh, momentum built into the Tennessee mile. However, the opposite could happen and you could go and be slightly humbled, which I don't think you would, which could also be demotivating. So one, it would stroke the ego most likely. Yeah. That's not a bad thing necessarily. The other good thing is it could um, just sort of start the circuit uh, of movement in your brain and body in regards to next year. As far as, oh, I got a little taste. I found out what I need to work on. And you could be a little more specific in your training next season when you're starting to think about stadiums because you got out there on course and found out where you were still exposed. That's what I can come up with. What do you got? That's it. Okay. Same things. And the Eagle piece shouldn't matter. I'm going to get a cool Instagram post. If I make the podium where I can smugly say, yeah, I'm back. You don't post on your Instagram, <laughs> you know, which I'm not, I shouldn't be allowed to do that because if I do well, which I think I would, because it's, you're not going to have the strongest field and it's up my alley skill wise. If I do well, it's going to kind of cover up the places I really need to be worried about and work on. Mm. Success has a way of dulling your, your, your bad points. And if I don't do well, it might compromise my enthusiasm for this build. Mm-hmm. So why, why break something that's that's really working well for you. So I know, I know, I know, I know. And yet it doesn't matter. I'm the eternal competitive optimist, Kirk, and I just want to compete. It's okay to waffle over it. You're making the right decision. You're going to make the right decision. I, um, I'm going to turn this on me for a second and then let's talk about our, our topic. But uh, I don't know what to do with myself right now, to be honest with you. I don't know what I should do because I'm at this point where uh, I sort of have this new fitness that I just got lucky with. Like I fell into this. I haven't, I haven't been trying. What to would you to- say to a guest who said, I have lucky fitness that I fell into? It's not like a ball pit at the Chuck E. Cheese. You don't slip and wind up in here and be like, oh, look at all these awesome fitness balls. You know what I used? Speaking of ball, you just brought back a memory instantly. The ball pits at Chuck E. Cheese. This is so gross. We used to go there once a week as kids. 
And I realized like the kids that jump in the ball pit, like have change in their pocket or other shit. Mm -hmm. And you can fish it out in the bottom of these ball pits. But so we would jump in the middle of the ball pit for five minutes and then everything would be in the center and we'd put our hands down there and see what we came up with. Well, you find about 10 socks. Yeah. About 20 band-aids, some things that you can't really understand what they are, but they're disgusting. And you get like a dollar 50 and change. You did that at the ball pits too. I did less of ball pits. Mine was directly under all the machines. People drop coins and they roll under. And so I would go there with like two and a half dollars and I'd, I'd leave with about $8 with the coins just by finding things under the machines. We were both grubby kids. Yeah, we were. You know what else I did? And this is horrible. I was like eight years old. I shouldn't, this is, I might go to jail for this. We would go by these little packs of plastic coins. They made like fake money at the gas station. You could buy, be like 10 bucks and change and then a bunch of small bills for like a buck 50. Well, we would take those fake little quarters and they were risen. The faces were risen. You couldn't like use them for anything unless you sandpapered down the faces and they would go in those little candy machines for like runts or Mike and I. <laughs> okay. So my sister and I, I came, I decided I like, maybe this will work. So we would sit there and buy these packs of coins, plastic coins, rub the faces off the, the risen part and go steal like 10 bucks worth of runts in Mike and Ike's from like the local Walgreens candy dispenser. And then they probably open it up and it's full of plastic coins. I did that as like a seven-year-old, eight-year-old. In hindsight, I would have grounded my kids for a damn year if I knew they were doing that. <laughs> yeah. Put the handcuffs on me. It's I have no justification for you. Other than the, the margins on runs must be huge. <laughs> <laughs> they must yeah. be huge. Now it felt good to confess that. Um, wow. But what I'm trying to figure out... What? Go ahead. I was going to say that we used to find washers because there's a weight component to a lot of those those games. You mm-hmm. can't just have a coin that's the same size. There's a weight component as well. And it, they don't work in most games, but in the ones where you um, take the coin and like launch it through and it has mm-hmm. to like drop down through things or or that like bulldozer game where it pushes them closer and closer to the edge, we used to find washers and use those. Smart. I just think you should get pat on the back for being, you know, ingenious at such a young age. That's what I think. I think that's where we've arrived to. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, tangent. But no, so what I'm trying to figure out is, no, I wasn't gifted this, but what I'm saying is I wasn't trying to build towards anything. I was going out and just like running hard because I needed to for my sanity and choosing workouts without any purpose. I was blind, the blind leading the blind in a sense, but what I was doing is everything else right. And I was still showing up and working hard and also recovering between. And now I just personal bested my fifteen fifteen test last week after a 16 mile recovery run the day before I, what'd you get? 1.61, which I feel good about. You should. And it's on a Nordic track. No, this was on my, uh, treadmill at the gym. My oh, I should have said that. That's okay. You broke Atkins broke his as well. He cracked his board, his running board underneath it. What'd you do? One of the wires rubbed and uh, there's a fuse that like burnt one of the prongs uh-huh. on the insert, but um, I have the part, I just got to install it. But anyways, and then I go out and I run about seven and a half miles of threshold tempo work yesterday and average like 520 pace. And it was broken up three times with a little recovery loop. But anyways, and I'm like, well, do I just shut it down and restart a build? Or do I try to just jump in and like be local hero in a turkey trot and go down to Florida in December and then shut it? Do I like race? Because my season's all off right now. It doesn't align with anything as far as like fitness goes. So I'm not sure if I should just be like, eh, let's not use it right now and just take a breather and reset. Or do I use it for a little bit and then reset? Either way, a reset's happening, but kind of the sooner I reset, the better really. But should I prolong that anyways? I don't know what to do. I think we give you the opposite advice that you gave me. I think you got a race. How come? Because you, A, deserve it you've worked hard, you have fitness, use it. And the other thing, and this is a bit morbid, but you have a history of lower leg injuries Mm -hmm. when you're in your late Mm thirties. There's never a guarantee that you'll be right here again, healthy and fast and hungry. And I think that when you arrive there, you take it. Now I'm not saying this is like, this is the last dance here, Kirk, but 
how many more years do you have before your speed starts to decline? Probably not many. I'd say you race every time you're fit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm already feeling it. I'm, what am I? 34? I think so. I lost year 33 and half a 32, mm-hmm. which are the the years you start to tail off speed wise. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit younger than you and I'm already realizing I need to maximize my fitness peaks from here on out. So that would be my advice. You're here. There's no guarantees moving forward. Yeah. You haven't talked about it publicly, but that knee thing you've got going on might need to be addressed. Who knows when the next time you have usable fitness like this, I'd say you use it. Knee thing's going to need to be addressed, by the way, but I think I'll be joining the meniscus surgery camp if I listen uh, to my intuition, but sure can handle flat running okay, but as soon as you put me on any sort of downhill or technical terrain, I can barely walk for a few days after a run, so we'll see, but um, okay, I'm thinking about it. Yes, I, w- I would race Turkey Trot and Florida. But see, this is only for ego, and we said ego is not the right reason, but like nothing I care about. But we're in different spots. Yeah. You have, you are where I want to be by spring. Mm-hmm. I won't get there if I start making ego decisions. Okay. If you are, if you think you're going under the knife. Well, I haven't even got checked it out yet, but I have a, it's going to need to be addressed. Yeah. What did I do before I went under? I went and did a hundred mile time trial. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Go rip it up once and then go get surgered. All right. We'll think on that one. It's good to have good fitness, but it's also like a little interesting to have it without like, like a. A shiny thing to look at, you know, to work towards. But I guess that if you're if you're talking about testament to just following the process in a sense, where like you just show up for yourself, you do things good for yourself, and usually set yourself up to make decisions like this, which I guess is is a good thing. But um, okay, should we say what we're doing here the next few weeks? Yeah, that was a brief twenty one and a half minute intro. Now they've been getting longer. Um, so I don't know how many weeks we're going to do this, Bracken. But I thought we should go back to foundations, the foundations and the principles of running and training. Another mini series. We're doing our coaches sort of series on our Friday long format uh, episodes. And I thought we should do a series. We thought we should do a series on these Tuesday episodes. Breck and I talked about how we've sort of been talking a little philosophy. We've been more in these like, I don't know what you call them, like tertiary subjects, not like the principles of running and run training and the foundations that everything is built upon. We did a lot of that early, almost two years ago. We haven't really touched on a lot of that stuff in the last like year. And so we thought that we would break down um, prescribed runs, type of training, all of that stuff, one single topic at a time for weeks until we run out of topics. That's our plan. Yeah, we've been talking to these great coaches We've been been preaching the good word, but at the same time, we've been using jargon. We've been using semi-technical to technical terms, just industry words that if we truly are the running public, we have people from both ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between. And we all need to be on the same page with the terms we use and how they apply to running. So I like your idea that these are the foundations of fitness. If you Mm -hmm. are going to run, you are going to use these words. If you don't use them, your coach will. If your coach doesn't, the training plan you follow. If the training plan you follow doesn't, the people you listen to on podcasts will, or your friends in the running community. These are all terms they're going to use. And it's not just to know it conversationally. It's also to know how they affect you and why they're needed in any training plan. So these are just the building blocks of fitness. And we want you all to understand them to the same level that anyone who wants to be successful needs to understand them at. Yeah. So this will be kicking off our foundation series. And I remember we did an episode on warmups and cool downs and that, and we remember, I remember talking to you about that and be like, there's no way we're going to be able to talk for like an hour about warmups and cool downs. And it ended up being like an hour 20 episode, our longest training Tuesday <laughs> yet. And, and it was just about warmups and cool downs. And so we were like, can we really talk about, let's say, recovery runs, which is today's topic, for an hour? Well, let's find out. I don't know. Where the yeah. shot, isn't it? And, and maybe they, these will be a little shorter episodes, but um, we can't forget about the principles because that's what the foundation of everything we do is built upon. So that's why we're going back to it. And plus, you know, we've been talking so much. We've been talking to death about base phase and off-season training and 
all of those things. And like, this all ties into the next phase that you guys will be going through, which means like re-understanding what you're actually doing. We've been talking base training. This is the time to begin it for most people, not everyone, but a lot of the population right now of running, of runners needs to start base building. And then we just had Matt Fitzgerald on, who is a massive proponent of polarized training. Hard days, hard, easy days, easy. Easy days make up roughly 80% of your training. In base training, it's oftentimes more. And so let's just start with the easy days, easy runs and recovery runs. That's it. It's an easy component, but it's the thing that people get wrong more than anything else. People put all their focus on how do I do my quality days, my hard days correctly. But it's a smaller piece of the puzzle. The bigger piece is building your aerobic engine, which takes doing easy correctly. So even though it's maybe the simplest run to execute, it's the most often done incorrectly. So I don't care if this seems shallow or pedantic or or like novice stuff. If you're doing it wrong, then in some regards, you're still a novice and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about it today. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that just going on Matt Fitzgerald's principle of like, 80% of what you do should be aerobic and easy. Like, I think we can talk about that for 30 minutes. If 80% of the time your feet are in your running shoes are supposed to be easy and recovery, like it, it deserves half hour of our time. I also do, not that I want to yell at our listeners, but I, I do want to shake a few of them. I'm disappointed in the downloads from the Matt Fitzgerald episode. I was shocked at how low they are compared to his name. And what that tells me is that One, some of you haven't been listening to us because we reference his books practically every other episode. And you saw him and just didn't recognize his name. Or He's a really big, smart, very kind, very educated, really great interview. And our downloads were like, meh. And I was like, what is wrong with you people? You gave a great interview. This is the guy that has laid a foundation for what we talked to you about. It's out of the cat's mouth. And yet our downloads weren't where I wanted them to be. Go back and listen to the episode people. Did you agree with that? Yeah, I do. What the I do heck? agree with it. And and the kind of the cool thing is that it wasn't I've I've listened to him on other podcasts. This wasn't the this isn't what you've heard before. Some of it is, but there's there's a lot that he talked about that I have never heard about from him before. It's a great 2-hour conversation. If you followed his whole career, if you listened to all of his stuff, you'll get something out of this. Yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. So anyways, if you haven't listened to it for some reason, or you're like an OCR guy and don't think like, oh, a traditional run guy doesn't apply to me, or you just like lapsed on who he spoke with, it was probably one of the interviews we looked forward to the most, and he provided. Like, it was a fantastic conversation. And he let you into his personal life, which is not easy for people to do like him. And so I think it was pretty cool. I was talking to my brother afterwards, and he and I had the same takeaway. We went in thinking, it's probably a good thing it's not a, traditional interview episode where we just dive into them because he's a, an expert in his field. And so it's a good thing that we're just going to focus on his expertise in the coaching episode and just get all of that. And we both left thinking, man, I wish this was a regular interview. So we could have just spent the whole time just talking about him and his story because it was super interesting. Yeah, I agree. Anyways, just wanted to just smack around a few of our listeners. Real <laughs> yeah. quick. Smack. All right. So easy and recovery. I just had two athletes ask me for clarification on this, this last week. And these are people I've worked with all year, but they they said, just remind me again, what is my difference between recovery and easy or an easier? And I understand that quality means you need a recovery day afterwards. You're either going so you're either going anaerobic or you're going so long and it's impactful that you need a recovery run or an easy run afterwards. But what is the true difference between an easy run and a recovery run. Do you get that question a lot? No, um, but there is a difference. It's more personal jargon, but why don't you, I mean, why don't you explain it? Well, this is one of those things that other people are going to reply differently. So I'm just going to give my personal opinion on this. Easy run and recovery run are the same run with different guidelines. Mm -hmm. Every single recovery run contains the components of an easy run, but not every easy run is a recovery run. So the purpose of an easy run is to run aerobically. It means you do not exceed your aerobic threshold. And for most of my athletes that I work with, and for myself, 
I usually knock eight to 10 beats off your aerobic threshold. And that is the number that I try to sit at at my runs, that or slightly under. So that if my heart rate spikes on a hill or because I start thinking about a race or because just a banger from Rick Ross comes on, my heart rate can spike a little bit and still stay in my zone. Mm -hmm. So it's just inherently aerobic. That's what an easy run is. Yeah, I find like, yeah, a recovery run would be recovering from damage accrued um, from previous hard effort or long effort or any of those things. Um, I find the place for the easy run typically lands on those Mondays. Monday would be sort of like you had a big week before you had a long run on Saturday, but you took Sunday completely off or some sort of active recovery. And now Monday, you're, you got a little fatigue in your legs, but if you, if you burn just a hair hotter than a traditional true recovery run, it's probably just because the legs are feeling fresh and it's okay to just, just be a hair above maybe your typical recovery run. Just if, if your body's feeling light and good, you just sink into it, settle into an effort, um, which should not impact your quality day the next day. But once you've accrued damage from, let's say, a Tuesday quality day, then pretty much the rest of the week seems to follow suit where you go a little harder, you recover. Go a little harder, recover. But that Monday, I find, tends to lead itself to what we call like an easy run. Do you find the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. And I and I space my workouts out a little bit more. So almost every day before a workout's easy for me. But easy run is just, if you look at the zones, I call it zone two. I do not go into zone three at all. And I try to stay out of zone one. I just sit in zone two. If you look at the heart rate zone training. Mm-hmm. Recovery run, I have no limits on the lower end. There is no basement to it. So oftentimes my recovery runs are zone two. They are not allowed to leave zone two. They still have the same upper limit, but they have an additional upper limit caveat, which is you do not need to be at any heart rate or zone if it would prohibit you from recovering. So whatever effort you're using, it has to stimulate recovery and there is no basement. If I'm in zone one on recovery days, that's just fine. So mm-hmm. for me personally, I sit between 129 and 145 on my easy days. 129 would be a very low end of easy. 140, 138 to 145 heart rate would be about my normal easy zone. Mm-hmm. Recovery days, I don't care. I still won't get above probably 135, 140, but I, there'll be times I'm in the 120s one teens at times, if I switch over to the bike or to hiking. And the point is that it only is there to stimulate recovery. So if you are someone who's not a seven day a week runner, recovery runs might be a misnomer. You might not be able to run and stimulate recovery in your body. The purpose Mm -hmm. is to be active with a low heart rate, flush your body out, get things moving, Use your legs, use your arms, take you through the paces, the range of motions, and not inhibit recovery at all. So for a a three-day-a-week runner, there is no recovery run. It's recovery bike or recovery hike, recovery walk, Mm -hmm. recovery, whatever it is. But So the two differences between the two is that easy is designed to spur aerobic growth. Recovery is designed to help your body recover. And until you're, until you're in it more of an advanced runner, you can't really work on the skill of running while recovering. And so the recovery run turns into recovery non-impact because the, the, the purpose of both is still to work on your skills correctly. Running slow doesn't mean changing your form for the worse. Your form might be different, but it still should be perfect. And that's where I think a lot of people screw up is that real easy runs and recovery runs, they have sloppy, saggy form. And that's not the purpose. I have to run with perfect form. And if I can't do that while recovering, then I switch to biking or hiking. Well, I think the tough thing about this is we talk about recovery. We talk about easy runs, but like, I think the confusing part and where the muddy, the waters get muddy is that people don't really understand how you should feel during this. And then what also makes your decision on like, what is easy enough? For example, we, we talk about if you're in a solid training pattern and you're hitting big quality days hard, uh, your next day or two might actually feel like complete dog shit, right? And so you go out and run and your legs feel like watered down logs with boat anchors tied to them. And you want nothing to do. You hate every step. Your hips are a little sore because you did a hill workout the day before and you're just not feeling it. And you're just like, everything about this run is a struggle. Like, am I even recovering? 
Like, how do you know? Because typically when you're in a good training pattern, your recovery days do feel pretty sluggish. Yes. And so you're like, God, I'm working hard just to run nine minute pace. It feels like today, like this can't possibly be recovery. Like my legs are dead. So you have to like, you have to come up with steadfast rules for yourself as far as what recovery is, whether you have a heart rate monitor or not. I, I would hope that most of you now do go off of heart rate training. I fully bought into the principle. It took me years, but I have. So like, I want to like lead to the conversation of like, how do you know you're actually recovering? I mean, I know I have answers to this, but I'll kick it mm-hmm. off to you first. Like, how do you know your effort is helping you recover? Like if your legs feel like dog shit already, where you're everything in your body saying, don't run today. You're beat up, sore, tired, not enjoying one thing about this. Because a lot of times that's how you feel after a big quality workout. So what do you do with that? This is, there are not hard and fast rules for everyone because it depends on what your goal is as an athlete. If you're a professional athlete, then you run through just about everything other than injuries that are going to set you back mm-hmm. because your only goal is to hone your craft. And if you're only there to enjoy yourself, you don't run on days you feel like crap because it's not enjoyable. Right. But most of us sit somewhere in the middle. And I think that running through fatigue, totally fine. Running through some soreness is totally fine, but I don't run through pain. So for example, yesterday I did a workout um, uh, let me back up Sunday. I did a workout where I did an easy run, but every time I hit a downhill, I ran it very quickly with optimal foot plant, optimal stride. And I'm a little beat up from it. And then yesterday I did a sled push and pull. I stayed high end aerobic and then I'd go run high end aerobic at 25% incline in between my sled pushes and pulls. I did four minutes of sled, four minutes of running. Well, between those two workouts, my quads and calves are pretty sore. I will run through quad soreness because I know for my body, that's okay. It's going to get better by doing some easy running on soft terrain. I won't run through actual calf pain because calves are too touchy and my calves have a history of lasting too long. So I will run through quad pain. I won't run through calf or Achilles pain. So I have little rules that I have to follow myself because that's not helping me recover. If I run on my calves today, I'll have 72 more hours of calf pain and I'm going to have to skip a run. But if I bike today and hike and then maybe in the evening jog a little, I'll feel great tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So part of it is how, how you handle your fatigue. And the other part is, how, are you setting your body back on its recovery and of actual pain or not? So step one, if you are in actual pain... Yes. Like that would be an indicator that, that you're not recovering on your recovery run, which means cross train or potentially off day, depending on what's going on. So come up with those rules for yourself. I think that's a good first step, right? Like if it hurts, like long game, pay now or pay later, right? We always say that. Yeah. And I think that that's the first hiccup point for people, which is they either err on the side of doing too much on a recovery day, thinking good, good athletes, they run every day. I got to be tougher than this. This isn't an, this is not an injury or the air on the side of my calves are beat up. I need an off day. Most people's bodies respond better to active recovery than passive recovery. Yep. And so you have to translate your run to some other modality. And that's, that may be a conversation for a different day, but either way, recovery's job is only to get you ready for the next workout, which comes back to our big main principle, which is have bigger efforts in your week. Yep. And I think that's probably what you were leading towards, which is how do I know if I'm recovering? Well, you know, you're recovering. If you can then hit your next bigger workout, your next quality day, as long as you arrive there and you're still hitting it and feeling relatively decent doing it, you're progressing with your recovery. If you can't hit your bigger workouts, then it doesn't matter if you felt good on your easy day and ran a little harder because you couldn't do it the next day. Yeah. Well, it's easy for us to take like well the easy route and just go right to heart rate. Right. But let's talk about the non heart rate camp and the non heart rate camp means I don't, I'm not a slave to my heart rate monitor. I don't want to be, I don't buy into it or I just don't want to. And I understand that actually, cause it can get a little monotonous and it can get a little just ugh, like you're, you, you found like, you know, you're a slave to one thing. Um, what's wrong with going off a of field? That's how everybody's always done it. Right. And some people are really good at that. And I think what you talked about is exactly correct. Like, um, if you're popping your quality days, then that's a pretty good sign. Like if you're feeling relatively good, you feel like your cellular energy is good. You're able to sink your teeth into the workout. You're probably doing okay on the recovery effort front. So like starting with that, 
I like that. Do you have any other for the non heart rate using crowd recommendations? Yeah. And this is a lot more intuitive, but during the run and then afterwards, if you think how many days in a row could I do this? Mm -hmm. If it's an easy run in theory, you could do it almost every single day and you would never really feel like you needed much of a break from it. Sure. Like I say, you went out to do a 40 minute easy run. You could do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And eventually you might want to take a break because it's monotonous, but you would feel like I could do this kind of indefinitely. I'd probably be improving a little bit over time. I'd get a little faster at it or, or I could go longer at the same pace, but this isn't setting me back at all. And I could do this again tomorrow indefinitely. Yeah. That's easy. If you exceed easy, you know, I couldn't do this for days and weeks on end. Recovery would feel a little depressing to do it every day. If you think how many days in a row could I do this? Your thought process would be, I could do it forever, but I would start to regress. Eventually it would just be boring and dull. And I don't think I would race as well. And I would be I might even get slower or more sluggish doing this every day. I would need something else in my life. And that's really the key difference between recovery and easy. Easy maintains what you're doing and you might even improve off of it because you're going to build aerobically. Recovery Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily build much. It just helps you get back to the next day where you're going to be able to build. Yep. I agree with that. And then talking about the pacing crowd, like the, oh, I run 10 minutes on my recovery days. That's my pace. And that's the one thing like I would try to tell you not to do uh-huh. in the non-heart rate crowd is get caught up in pace. Just c- continue to trust your body and go by feel pace, depending on, is there a strong headwind today? Is the temperature cold or is the footing bad? Um, am I, you know, like actually fatigued and thus I'm having to work harder to run this certain pace. Like I can see on some days when I don't have much residual or accumulated fatigue, Let's say I go out and run seven minute pace and I can do that at 130 to 135 heart rate. I can tell you that on a day I'm super tired, compromised, sore, or otherwise little sleep, I may have to run 730 to 740 pace to keep my heart rate in the same zone. That's a giant discrepancy. So if I go out and tell myself like, oh, I'm going to go run seven minute pace because I can recover at that. Then I go do that. But my heart rate's at 145 to 150 beats a minute because of fatigue, sickness, underslept poorly fed. I'm not accomplishing my task at hand. So like I would just, and then, then you can get into the whole rabbit hole of are there hills in the, on the route? Are there not? And we're trying to hold a pace and become so damn cloudy and blurry that I'd rather you try to just listen to your body versus go off of any sort of pacing. In fact, turn the pace feature off on your watch and just whatever you can do or don't look at it or keep the time up, not the, you know, whatever the pacing. I just think that that's like a, a place that a lot of people go wrong. And even though we talk about it, I still think a lot of people do it and it doesn't serve you very well at all. No. When I do easy recovery runs, my my face on my watch that I go to has time, it has distance, and it has cadence. Okay. Those are the three fields it shows. And then if I'm using heart rate that day, then I also have heart rate. I I really only use heart rate on threshold work and easy recovery days. Generally not easy because I... I'm pretty good at keeping myself reined in on easy days, but recovery days, because sometimes you just really don't, even though you know your body, sometimes you're wrong about what the effort is costing you on a day when you have to recover from something. And so like my argument against going by pace is this, if you set out to run a pace on any given day, there's times you can't do that with the correct effort. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're getting sick. Maybe you had a hard workout. Maybe it's hot. Maybe you're at altitude. Maybe it's hilly. Maybe you're sore. It could be anything. There are times where you can't hit that pace as much as you'd want to. And even if you do hit it, it's costing you way too much. But if you set out to run a heart rate or an effort, you can always hit it. Because you just slow down and slow down and slow down. And eventually your heart rate's where you want it to be. So if you don't care about pace, you only care about the heart rate or the effort, you will always succeed on that easier recovery day. But if you only care about the pace, you will inherently fail at times. And since the goal is to get to the next bigger day, you can't fail there because then you doubly fail. 
you not only fail on that day to recover, but then you fail to execute your quality day correctly. Yeah. So the crowd that I think this applies to most is the roadrunner or the treadmill crowd. I get on there, I set it to seven miles per hour because that's my easy pace and I go. Well, there are days that that's just not easy for your body. Even though your fitness says you can do it, like it is not a personal slight to not be able to do that on some days because your body is a complex system that has a lot of things going on. And so you just can't hit it. And even if you could, I'm a believer uh, in building into efforts, especially in easy days. And I'm a believer that people, the easier the workout is intended, the worse they warm up. Mm-hmm. And so you might put your legs through every single range of motion and a huge warm up and get you ready for your quality days or your intense days. But on the easy days, you just plug right into the pace you're trying to hit and you do it from the start. You would really never do that on a quality day because you know your body doesn't work that way. It has to get built up into that, but we do it on easy days. So I'm a big proponent of start excessively slow and build up into it. So if you have to run seven miles per hour on the treadmill, no matter what, okay, I'll give you that. Why not? But spend the first five to 10 minutes gradually getting to that point, And you're going to really enhance your chances of being able to run that pace every day while still not exceeding your easy zone. Yeah. And if you want to get caught up in pace, go nuts on your quality days. Then you can have your, you know, have your appetite filled that way. Um, what do you think? Just spawn a quick question about listening to your body and all that. And I want to just talk briefly about like the heart rate crowd too, of course, Mm -hmm. Um, but we've talked about it so much, but we'll just touch on it. But um, like, actually we should put this next topic into the heart rate crowd. And that is like, what if I like, I have to walk sometimes on my recovery runs to keep them truly easy. Like my heart rate isn't even doing what I want it to like, does that mean like, do I not do that because I'm a runner? Like walking has no place in running if you're taking this seriously in some people's minds, right, Bracken? Or are we wrong there? Does that mean like if walking, if I my heart rate's rising and I shouldn't be seeing higher than 145 and it's getting up there, does that mean a walk reset or a hike the hills is actually appropriate? What Absolutely. do you think there? Absolutely it is. Because we don't care about performance on easy and recovery. We care about performance when it counts. And the only way to perform when it counts is to arrive appropriately rested and prepared. So yes, you have to, you have to back off as far as it takes. Now, if you are the type of person who can't run aerobically, this is when I think you're a candidate for doing a different type of activity, biking, hiking, uh, aqua jogging, rowing, elliptical, anything on your aerobic days and only running on skill days, doing some strides, doing some uphill runs until you get to the point where your engine is strong enough to support your body to run. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise it's a depressing process. Doing, Doing a walk run for some people is stimulating. For others, it's depressing. Thinking I can't even run and I'm trying to be a runner. Then, then I recommend not banging your head against the wall. Go do all your aerobic work in a place where you're not impacting the ground and you're not fighting gravity and you can just work on your heart and your lungs. And then you sprinkle in running as you can. But yeah, it's walking's a thing. Phil Maffetone is a very famous coach. I don't believe it. I don't agree with everything he talks about, but he's undeniably successful. His book talks about If you follow the math method, you must walk up hills when your heart rate spikes. The Ingebrigtsens, the the training of Marius Bakken from over in uh, Norway and Sweden, and those people who have embraced threshold training and heart rate-based training, they have professional athletes walking up their hills on their easy days. These, I mean, Jakob Ingebrigtsen ran 1250, 1248 maybe in a 5K? He's our Olympic 1500 meter champ. He's the Olympic 1500 champ. He's run, he's won junior world cross country titles. He can run up hills. <laughs> you ever watch, go back and watch his, uh, his junior world championship cross country race on YouTube. His hills are effortless. He's blowing the Kenyans and the Ethiopians out of the water. And he's not even changing his form. The man can run any pace up any train you want. And his brother's and him have been seen walking up hills, checking their heart rate in training so that they don't go above mm-hmm. the zone they want to be in. So multiple professional minds and athletes will do this. We can do it. I agree. 
So let's talk about that just real quick then, the heart rate uh, yeah. training principle and recovery runs. Um, how do you follow that appropriately? Well, the first thing you have to do is get a legitimate number for your heart rates. You cannot, and this is one place I differ from Maffetone, and I think Rich Diaz talked about it and a few others. You can't just take 180 minus your, or 220 minus your age or 180 minus your age plus a, uh, a variance for how fit you are and how healthy you are in your years of training. Those kind of things don't work. They just don't. Because I know a, a 60-year-old man whose heart rate max is currently 189 which science yeah. says is impossible. And I, there have been some professional athletes who are in their 20s who their heart rate max is 189. And science said it should be 210 at the time. So anyways, right. it's just not accurate. So you have to perform. I think the easiest style of test to perform early on is an aerobic threshold test. A max heart rate test is only as accurate as you are tough. You have to be able to max yourself out. It's miserable. And it's tough to do without people around and without a lab. Uh, a lactate threshold test or a VO2 max test, same kind of thing. It's very performance dependent, but almost everyone can go out and complete an aerobic threshold test. And so mm -hmm. I would recommend people look up the uphill athlete aerobic threshold tests. And you either do theirs where you do a, uh, a heart rate test on the treadmill and it only is uh, 15 minutes long plus about a 15 minute prelude to it and you get an average heart rate or you do their drift test. And I would actually say people should do both, but look up the uphill athlete aerobic threshold heart rate test and drift test. Perform those two. They are not damaging tests. They can be done basically as high-end easy days. And you can do them both in the same week. And then you'll have an idea of what your aerobic threshold heart rate is, which is essentially as fast as you can work while still remaining aerobic in nature. You're deriving the vast majority of your energy aerobically. Yeah. And then that's your cap. That is, I do not exceed this. But I think the safest thing to do is take a minimum of five, maybe even up to 10 beats off that number. And that's around where you should work as your, your working ceiling on your easy days. So for yeah. me, that number is 148 to 151, depending on when I test it. So let's just call it 150. I sit around 140 when I do my easy days. It's a good, mm -hmm. safe place to be. And when we talk about thresholds, science shows that there are diminishing returns the higher you get to the upper end of your threshold. So if you're working in lactate threshold, you get results all the way up to it, but then you start compounding your recovery demands afterwards. So you're just as good working a little under as you are working above, but you can recover better. And the same thing goes for aerobic threshold. My aerobic threshold's 150, and I work at 149, 150 all the time. I'm getting essentially the same benefits of my aerobic development as I get at 139, 140. But I never run the risk of requiring recovery from my easy day, which means I can run, let's say, two hours comfortably at 149, but I could do three hours or four hours at 139 just allows you to do higher volume without even worrying about if I'm starting to compromise my process. So when in doubt, do less. That's where I start the heart rate threshold or the heart rate zone crowd. Yeah. And not to generalize because this is, you know, I shouldn't do this, but most people tend to fall for like a true recovery effort run, mostly between like 130 and 145. Some need 125, but most of the time, like I'm going to say for 80% of you listening, if you get finished with your run and you have a heart rate average under 140, you're probably most of the way there in your recovery as a general rule of thumb. An experiment you can do if you don't like, I don't want to do the threshold, the aerobic threshold test, or I just don't know. Like you can play an experiment, which is go out and try to hold 130 for a recovery run and see how you feel in the next day or two. Then maybe, yeah, see how I feel at 135 and say, I'm just going to pin a heart rate and I'm going to stay as close to that and average that by the time I'm done. And you can go and play and say, I'm going to go 140 and see what happens. And you're going to start to feel it out over time, like where you land personally as well. It's an experiment you can do. It might take you a few weeks. This week, I'm only going to recover at 130. Next, 135. You probably can find it out that way pretty easily over time if you want to. Um, and really, like one thing we haven't talked about is like max stroke volume, which is basically like how much blood your heart is pumping with each stroke. 
And really, when you start looking at it, once you get into like your true recovery aerobic state, we're reaching pretty much close max stroke volume, which tells us like you're accomplishing everything you need to. You're seeing aerobic benefit from what you're doing. And anything more than that isn't actually benefiting you at all because that's that gray zone we talk about where you're not really moving the fitness needle because it's not a quality day. And you're not going easy enough to truly recover. But in a true recovery run, when you're in a proper zone, you're reaching your max heart stroke volume, which means each beat, your, your heart is pumping as much blood as it possibly can per beat, and mission is accomplished for the day. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason to go harder because it doesn't really accomplish anything other than setting back your recovery. So I think just touching on those two things, um, the experimental heart rate, keeping that on your recovery runs, and then just understanding like you're not seeing a return on investment if you run harder than that from like an aerobic standpoint anyways because you're reaching max stroke volume typically in that recovery zone, which means like mission accomplished, no need to go harder. Every box has been checked, so to speak. Yeah. in that, that experimental procedure you can do in a shortened time frame by doing that drift test. Kirk, you and I haven't even talked about the drift test. We usually talk about the nose breathing test for aerobic threshold testing, but some people can't breathe through their nose effectively. And other people are too tough for their own good, where they can like nose gasp without really realizing they're doing it. And so the drift test is where you choose what you think your easy running is. Like, this is how I run easy. You build up to that slowly. So for me, it's like I'm building up to 140 or 142 Mm -hmm. or 145. Let's just say 142. So I take 15 minutes to build my heart rate up or 10 minutes or whatever it's going to take, build up to 142 beats per minute. And I hold it there for a few minutes. And I'd like to do this one on the treadmill. It's easier. So I look down, let's say I'm running that seven miles per hour. I start my watch and I hold it for an hour, seven miles per hour. I do not get to change the speed at all. And you just track your heart rate and the drift test tracks your heart rate drift. And I might get the numbers incorrect because I haven't looked at them in a little bit, but it's something like zero to two or zero to two and a half percent drift. So change from 142, let's say I finish at 147. If I'm zero to two or two and a half percent drift, I'm actually running a little under what my aerobic threshold really is because my heart rate hasn't really changed at all throughout that. Mm -hmm. And that means it's a good safe zone to train in, but you can probably bump up your heart rate a little bit and still be within the sweet spot. If you go from two or two and a half to like four or five, somewhere in there, percent drift, that's right in the sweet spot. That's about how much your heart rate should drift over an hour if you're working right around aerobic threshold. And if you're above that, if you drift more than four and a half or five percent, then you know you're moving, you're working too hard. Yep. And so it's an easy one workout. It tells you I need to go up, down or stay the same. And now you try it again two or three days later. And now usually in two sessions, you can get pretty darn close. So you can experiment yourself on your, your recovery runs if you don't want to compromise your schedule over the course of a couple of weeks, or you can dial it in in two workouts. So that's why I like to use that aerobic threshold nasal breathing test combined with the drift test because, and I'll, I'll give credit to a, a guy named Ben Bogard that I work with where he finally just said, hey, coach, <laughs> this nasal thing, I think I'm... I think I'm working way too hard on it. Can I try the drift mm-hmm. test? And I was like, oh man, I haven't used the drift test in a long time. And and it was a good refresher that you're good to have checks and balances. So again, I'm, I'm being a broken record, but look up the uphill athlete heart rate tests, the drift test and the nasal breathing, the nose breathing test. Well, I'll tell you what, I did that recently. I did a 16 mile run last week and I said, I'm going to run what mm-hmm. I think is a recovery effort pace. This is an experiment purely because this is the time of year I can do it. So I'm going to run 655 pace and I'm going to keep going until I see cardiac drift happen. My heart rate on this, I'm looking, I pulled it up. I wasn't ignoring you, Bracken. I stayed under 140 through mile 13. Okay. I averaged like 135 through mile 13. And then 14, 15, 16, I went 143, 148, 149. So I bumped up roughly over 10 beats a minute in those last, that last bit. But what that tells me is it tells me, Again, you should not go off of pace, but it gave me an idea in case like, hey, an eight mile recovery run at that effort, at that pace is going to be totally fine. I didn't see cardiac drift until after an hour 15 right. or 20, for example. So it kind of speaks to that. It was good peace of mind to say I'm doing something right or I don't want to wear a heart rate monitor today or I'm sick of that. It, I think that's a worthwhile test to do. 
yeah, it, it'll scratch an itch for sure. So, so that's again long answers to what our questions were. That's where you start. You identify an actual number. If you're going to have a heart rate monitor, if you're going to bother looking at it, you might as well have a number that's accurate to you. Now, your pace at that number will change throughout time, but your actual heart rate's not going to change a ton. It will change, but it's not going to change a lot. Like I've seen a three beat per minute difference depending on my fitness of what my aerobic threshold is. That's significant in a lab. It's insignificant in the real world. Right. Once you have that, you just have a number that's yours. And again, it can be plus minus three to five over time, but it's not going to be much more than that. And then you start figuring out your zones. There's so many online calculators you can plug in. This is my aerobic threshold heart rate. Boom. Give me my zones. And the one piece that I will caution people is that in the traditional five zone heart rate model, zone three is like a two-part zone where the low end of zone three is considered aerobic and the high end is considered starting to get anaerobic. I am a strong advocate of just getting rid of zone three on easy days. Don't even bother. Just stay in zone two. You're going to get... 95, 99, somewhere in there percent of the aerobic development benefits of low end zone three with zero associated risks or drawback. Yep. So just, just make a commitment to, I will not exceed zone two on easy days, as long as you're going to keep some long runs and hard runs in there. And I think long-term development, that's the sweet spot. Yep. Airing on the side of caution there. It's only going to lead to better recovery or ensuring your recovery. And some people will argue that, but for the recreational or amateur runner, why would we ever risk burnout or injury? Yep. There's no reward great enough for that. I agree. What uh, I'm, I'm happy. I'm satisfied with what we've, we've dove into as far as recovery goes. I think maybe spawn a few more questions uh, from listeners. I'm not sure. But do you have anything else that you want to make sure we touch on here? No, I, I, but I do want to give like the professional examples of this, just because some people will always say, but professionals run so fast. So let's look at, again, the Ingebrigtsens, John Albin, Mark Allen. Let's see who else is out there that does. The, 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 the people who are world champions and follow this. John Albin made the switch from zone three to zone two exclusively on easy and recovery days a few years ago. This man is winning everything. He's won some of the most prestigious trail races. He's a multiple time OCR world champion, sky running world champion. He's just a freak of nature who can race as high end as anyone and does not exceed zone two. Oh, him, his, you look at John Albin's heart rate uh, stuff on his runs. Sometimes I see Albin in the teens. He'll be like average one teens on his recovery run. That's how easy he takes his easy days off. They're annoyingly low. Yeah, they are. Continue. Yeah. The Ingebrigtsens are famous for walking up hills on base training runs. Any Anyone that uh, Phil Maffetone's ever worked with, they don't exceed aerobic threshold on their easy runs. There's just, there's example after example of professional athlete who runs easy. And I guess the most famous might be Eliud Kuchogi. We're a broken, re- I'm a broken record on here, but this is a guy who ran low 430s for 26 straight miles, and he'll start in the 830s on easy and recovery days before he progresses to more of a uh, a quicker pace for us. But if a guy who can run 431, 432 for two hours will start an easy and recovery day at 830, eight minute pace, and then maybe cut down to seven or 730 or 630. If he's going to run two to three minutes slower per mile than his marathon pace, think about that compared to your scale. He's mm-hmm. a 432 marathon pace runner. All right. He'll run four minutes slower than his marathon pace to begin some easy runs. What is your marathon pace? Mm-hmm. Maybe six minutes per mile. Are you going to ever start a run at nine minutes per mile? Maybe your marathon pace is eight minutes per mile. Suddenly running a 10 minute mile average on an easy day doesn't seem so crazy. Mm-hmm. I, uh, 
I watched a video this week and it popped up in my suggestions on YouTube and it was watching like normal people run Elliot Kipchoge's marathon pace. Have okay. you seen that? <laughs> yeah, on, a treadmill? on the treadmill? Yeah. It's just amusing to see somebody get on there and they look like they're going to fall off the back within five seconds. It's worth like taking five minutes to watch that. But you make some very good points there, Bracken. The best, the best of the best all recover like it's their job. Yeah. They don't care about metrics on those days. They don't care about pacing on those days. They care about recovery. That's what matters. And the thing to be careful about when looking at pro athletes are the exceptions to the rule or the people who burn brightly and burn out. There are athletes who do all their running at a very fast pace or even a moderate effort, but they're trying to get to a world championship or an Olympic medal while they're in their prime and they don't care about long-term development. The vast majority of the listeners of this podcast are the every man, every woman runners. Like mm. there is no real goal for most of us that's worth the rest of our running career. So could you yep. get fitter faster doing it another way? Yes, you probably could. If I only had seven weeks to prepare for something, I'd push the envelope. But when I have seven years until I'm 40, like what's the point of seven weeks from now? Right. And that's, that's what we all need to remember. Yeah, don't be a hero. You don't need to be a damn hero on your recovery run. As I've said before, Nancy down the street does not care what pace you ran your six recovery miles at. Nobody gives a shit. So don't worry about that. The only thing that matters is your metabolic system and knowing that it's ready for the quality days. You want to impress people on Strava? Great. But you do have to do that unimpressive run first to set yourself up to do so properly. So think, um, I think we covered the bases, man. Looks like you got one more thing to say. I have, I took a screenshot of a, a message we got. I'd like to read it. Okay. This is tooting our own horn, but it's, it's kind of applicable to this. Guys, thank you so much for all you do. If not for this podcast, there's no way I would have made the podium yesterday on day two of back-to-back races. It's exactly why I had to rep the show with my shirt on the podium. The How to Train episode, where you have races every weekend, was exactly what I needed to hear. I can easily overdo it in training and come into races less than fresh. That episode gave me the guidance and the confidence on how not to overtrain while still being fully prepared for race day. It was music to my ears when you reminded us races do double down as hard efforts. Thank you again, Julius. That's right. Julius Jeter. Julius Jeter. He worked less hard in order to race better. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, we glamorize working hard. We want to work smart, which means you work hard when you're supposed to and not an ounce more, not a second longer, not a day more frequently. Yep, exactly. It'd be the same as like working 16 hour days every single day. Like eventually that's not sustainable and you're going to burn out. How about we try eight hour days and we take two days off every weekend? See if we can sustain that long term and still progress in our career and our future and maintain relationships at home. Like the answer to messing it all up is too much too often without too little in between you could relate it to work life socializing anything it's all true well you want to talk quality of life remove a little workout fatigue and stress from your body and see how much better your life gets see how less grumpy you are yeah yeah polarized training leads to happier lives it really truly does it does all right well i think we did it i think we covered our first foundations topic back in Easy and recovery. That's it. Boom.